Turn with me to John 16. Gospel of John, chapter 16. We're looking at verses 1 through 4. And considering heavens, EOD. John 16, verses 1 through 4, heavens, EOD. Give attention to God's holy word. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I've told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for the living ordinance of the preaching of your word. We acknowledge, O Lord, that it is only by your spirit that your word is made effectual, and so we come to you asking to bless us with your spirit, that our faith might be in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. We ask you to do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, some of you know who have served, and others of you have probably heard about a certain military job that goes under the acronym of an EOD. In the military, that acronym stands for an Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Uh, technician. Those that have served can correct me where I get some of these details wrong. But an explosive ordnance disposal uh, expert is one who deals with hidden landmines in the path of the army. And for the army to advance and to go forward and not become destroyed on the way, the EOD comes and marks out the path through the minefield. There's various ways that they can accomplish this, but the ultimate goal of the EOD is to lead the way, marking out where the danger is so that those who come behind can avoid the danger. Well, in this passage, Christ points out a dangerous minefield. He he points out where there are explosive devices along the pathway to heaven so that those who follow him will not be destroyed. Specifically, what we see in this passage is that Christ warns us that scandal is to be expected in the church, but it ought not to cause our faith to fail. Scandal is to be expected in the church, but it ought not to cause our faith to fail. You see, the landmine that Christ is pointing out for us is scandals, things that cause offense. But what he warns us about is that these things are out there, just like the mines are out there in the minefield, and if you know that they're coming, they should not be a cause of our faith failing. We're going to see three things in this passage. Verse one is the danger of scandal. Verse 2 is the sources of scandal. And verse 4 is the purpose 
of scandal. Verse 1 is the danger of scandal. Verses 2 and 3 are the sources of scandal. And verse 4 is the purpose of scandal. So we begin by looking at verse 1. Now you notice in, in verse 1, Christ says these words, These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Now the Greek word that's translated stumble comes from the, the root scandalon. Scandalon in the Greek New Testament is often translated as a stumbling stone, a trap, a snare. And you can see, I hope, very clearly that our word scandal comes from the Greek word scandalon. That's the word that's used here by John in verse 1. And so Christ tells us that he's telling us these things so that we would not be scandalized, so that we would not stumble, so that we would not trip and fall. This word scandalon throughout the New Testament is generally used to refer to giving offense to someone or, or taking offense at something. There's two types. One would be to stumble into sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about the conscience and things offered to idols. And he's counseling the Corinthians that for the sake of the weaker brother... Don't put a stumbling stone in his path. Don't give him a scandal on. Don't cause him to stumble into sin. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 10, we pick up Paul's argument here. Uh, just starting in verse 9, Paul's sentences are very hard to break up. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, if food is a scandalon to my brother, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother Stumble, Same Greek word that we find in John 16, verse 1. But notice the point that Paul is making here. He's saying that even though you might have knowledge that an idol is nothing and the meat of the idol's table is no different than regular meat, if the brother sees you eating meat in an idol's temple, you can give offense to him, causing him to sin. It becomes a stumbling stone for him. His conscience says, I shouldn't do this. That's an idol's temple. I shouldn't eat that meat. But the pastor is eating meat in the idol's temple. And so I guess it's okay for me as well. And he walks right into sin. That's Paul's point here. The second way this word is used, uh, the, the first type, as I said, was stumbling into sin. The second type is injured pride. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Christ is uh, speaking to the Jews. John 6, verse 61. This, of course, is the famous chapter and passage where Christ is teaching about his flesh and his blood. 
And he says that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is the context of what he's teaching. And then in verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand this? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, uh, uh, who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I said to you, no one can come up to me unless it has been granted by my Father. Notice verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So this offense, this stone of stumbling, can either be causing a brother to sin or it can be an injured pride. Peter uses the same example in 1 Peter 2. Turn there. 1 Peter 2. He speaks about the gospel of Christ as a scandal. Who is it scandalous to? Listen to what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter 2.7 Therefore to you believe he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed. Now the picture that Peter is drawing here is that in the gospel of Christ, the pride of the self-righteous is offended. They stumble at this. You're telling me I need to, to humble myself? You're telling me I need to trust in Christ and not in myself? It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This second sense, people being offended, is very common today. Most of social media is people voicing their offenses. I was offended by that driver. I was offended by that politician. This really upset me. Many take offense at, at very slight things. Critical theory, if you're familiar with critical theory, uh, that would be critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical fill-in-the-blank theory. The, the whole premise of critical theory is based on taking offense at everything. They call it microaggressions. If you do something that's slightly off-kilter, people take offense at it, and then they burn a city to the ground. Feminism, they talk about mansplaining. They're taking offense at minor things. It's very common today. It's in many ways the air which we breathe. Most of our politics is based on this. Most political ads are based on making you offended at the other guy. So you'll vote for the guy that paid for the ad. Secondly, there's also the, the pride of the self-righteous. We need to note, not all offenses that we take are worthy offenses. Some men are offended because they're led into sin by the example of someone else. Others are offended because their pride gets injured. That's not a worthy offense. And we need to be careful about these different kinds of offenses. Christ, now returning to John 16, 
Uh, I hope it's obvious, he has the first kind of offense in mind. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. He's careful that the disciples are not caused to fall into the sin of apostasy because of the scandals that will come. Notice the way Christ writes this language. I'm writing this literally in Greek so that you would not be scandalized. You trip on a scandal, you become scandalized. And Christ is saying, I don't want you to be scandalized. I don't want you to fall away because of the scandals that will come. I think we need to have our expectation of the church maybe reinformed here. Is our expectation that the church will always be peaceful and calm? If, if our expectation of the church is that it will always be peaceful and calm here in this life in the church, what happens when scandals arise? I'm sure many of you know stories of family members. I can tell you stories of my family members. Inside of a church, a massive moral scandal is exposed. Many fall away from the faith. One of the things we have to realize about life in the church is that all of us are sinners. And so scandals are going to happen because that's what we are. So we have to have our expectation of the church corrected a little bit. Um, If we expect the church to always be peaceful, what do we do when scandals come? Now remember what Christ said in Luke 17. It is inevitable that scandals will come. Luke 17, verses 1 through 5. Luke 17, verses 1 through 5. He said to his disciples, It is impossible... That no offenses come. That Greek word is scandal. It's our same word from John 16. Is it impossible that no scandalons will come? But woe to him through whom they do come. Would be better for him than, than uh, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Notice what Christ is teaching there in the church. It's impossible that offenses, uh, it's impossible that offenses should not come. But then he gives the solution to diffusing the bomb. Forgive. Don't be offended. Forgive your brother when he sins against you. Now notice what the apostles say. Forgiveness is not an easy thing. Christ says when your brother sins against you seven times in a day, if he comes to you, forgive him. Then the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. We don't have faith enough to forgive. Faith is not, uh, uh, forgiveness is not an easy thing. And so Christ warns us beforehand in the church, scandals will come, but I'm saying these things to you so that you would not be 
scandalized. Turning now back to John 16, he tells us what the source of scandals are. The source of scandals in verses 2 and 3. Notice the, the first thing he highlights are carnal church officers. Listen to what he says. They will put you out of the synagogues. First off, notice that they is a relative pronoun. You know what a relative pronoun does. It relates back to something that came before. Christ, in the previous section of John 15, had just told us about the world's hatred. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And last week, when we looked at this passage, we defined the world a little bit. This is just a reminder from last week. The world is the sum total of human rebellion against God. It's the kingdom of Satan where his will holds sway. Its members are those who walk according to the flesh. Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3. The lusts of the flesh are those that are contrary to the law of God. Romans 8, 5 through 8. The world is not just those outside the visible church. As I mentioned last week, this is a common mistake. The world can be inside and outside of the church. And when Christ says they will put you out of the synagogues, he's referring to the world. The world will put you outside of the church. Those that live according to the world will put you outside of the church. Philippians 3, 18 through 19 speaks of this. Jeremiah 9, 25 through 26. Acts 20, verses 29 through 30, Paul warns the Ephesian elders, even from among your own number, vicious wolves will arise, not sparing the flock. Calvin writes, this is just repeated from last week, but I think it's very insightful on Calvin's part. Here a frightful and hideous spectacle is placed before our eyes. For nowhere else than at Jerusalem was there at that time either a temple of God or lawful worship or the face of a church. The high priest was figure of the only mediator between God and men. Those who sat along with him in the council represented the whole church of God. And yet all of them united, conspiring to extinguish the only hope of salvation. Calvin's point here is that it was the officers of the church that crucified Christ. The high priest and all the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the officers of the visible church. But notice more so in John 16.2, they refers back to the world Christ had just spoken about. But notice what they have power to do. They will put you out of the synagogue. That's church officers. At least in this context, first century Judaism, the synagogue was the visible church. And so the ones that he's talking about have the power of the keys. They are the officers of the church that have power of excommunication. We've seen this before. John chapter 9, return to John chapter 9 very quickly or I should say, briefly. John 9, verse 22, you remember the story. It's the man born blind. The disciples ask Christ, who sinned? Him or his parents? Christ says, nah, nobody sinned. This is for the glory of God. Christ gives his sight back. The man is, is testifying, and then the Pharisees The rulers of the synagogue haul him and his family up before the church court. Then in verse 22, his parents are asked to testify before the officers of the church. 
His parents said these things. They said, well, we don't know. Ask him. He's old enough. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. He would be excommunicated. Continuing down in chapter 9 to verse 34. The man who once was blind but was given his sight, testifying to the glory of Christ and manfully defending his faith. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him. They cast him out of the synagogue. So we've seen this before. In the Old Testament, it was the officers of the church that imprisoned Jeremiah. It was the officers of the church that crucified Christ. It was the officers of the church that excommunicated Machen. It was the officers of the church that excommunicated Luther, that burned John Huss. It was the officers of the church that sent Latimer and Ridley to the stake. It was the officers who did these things. And so to my brother officers, I would say to you you and to myself, take heed. We we ought to be humbled by this and, and really ask ourselves, what manner of men ought we to be? Church office is not a sacrament. Church office is not a means of grace. Church office is a high and holy calling. Paul tells Timothy in his second letter, verse 6, 2 Timothy 1, 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, officers, which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The way to avoid being a carnal church officer is to be a spiritual church officer. It's to do all things in your office according to the Spirit of God, not according to the power of our flesh. Well, not only in John 16 do we find it's carnal church officers that are the source of one of the sources of these scandals. It's also demonic confusion. Look at what he says. John 16, 2 They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. What confusion. 
is here. The time will come when, when those who murder you will think they're doing the will of God. This is demonic confusion. This is, this is absolute blindness. They will kill the servants of Christ thinking that they are doing God's service. Murder is the tool of the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 42. John 8, 42. Christ says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Listen carefully. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. This is demonic confusion that Christ is talking about. James writes in the same vein. James 3, verse 13 James 3, verse 13, he talks about this, this demonic confusion. And notice, it's all connected to living in the flesh. James three thirteen. who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Listen to what he says. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Finally, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul warns Timothy, very much in the same way that Christ warns his disciples. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But know this, In the last days, perilous times will come, dangerous times, times that are fraught with landmines that you can't see. Perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of those that are good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as James, uh, Janez, and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Brothers and sisters, God is a spirit. And those who serve and worship him, especially in office, must worship and serve him by the spirit, in the spirit. What Paul describes here, what James describes in his letter, is carnality. Is, is walking according to the flesh. And it's walking according to the flesh that leads to this demonic confusion, which is the source of the scandals that Christ describes in his church.
John 16, once again, Christ has one more thing to say about the source of these scandals. He says, verse 3, These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Ultimately, these officers in the church do not know Christ. This is not an intellectual ignorance. They lack the knowledge of an experimental power of Christ. They lack an experience of his grace. Paul warns in Titus chapter 1. Paul tells Titus in chapter 1 of his letter. Titus 1.5. We won't read the whole passage, but uh, he gives the qualifications for a bishop. And then he says in verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things what they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Listen carefully to verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And so Christ tells us that these scandals in the church will come, and they will come from carnal church officers. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 17. Paul writing in the same vein about scandals and divisions. He says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be divisions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. As Christ said in John 17, uh, uh, sorry, Luke 17, as Paul says here, scandals will come. But this is so that he upon whom God's favor rests may be made manifest. Do not stumble. Christ told us beforehand. For this, all of this, turns to the glory of Christ. Now we turn to the purpose of of scandals in verse 4. John 16, 4. John 16, 4. Christ says, But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. The purpose of scandal is primarily for the glory of Christ. That's what Christ is saying here. When they come, you may remember that he told us about them. This means that when scandals come, you're seeing the word of Christ fulfilled among you. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 
Matthew 10, 34, Christ says this, Do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. The purpose of scandal is for the glory of Christ. It is so that his word would be fulfilled, but it is also to establish the reign of Christ. Look at what he says. John 16, 4. These things I've told you that when it comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Implying Christ is about to leave. That's the whole context of this upper room discourse. Christ is departing. He's told the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come back to you. All the rest of this uh, teaching is to prepare them for when he departs. Now, when Christ departs, what happens? He takes up his cross. He is crucified. He dies. He resurrects. And he's exalted. These things happened to Christ. They put him out of the synagogue. They killed him, thinking they did God's service. And so Christ is saying, I'm telling you about this beforehand. It's going to happen to me. It will happen to you. Do not stumble. Do not be scandalized. This is what's going to happen. These things will also happen after Christ departs and is ascended, and they show the exaltation of Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Paul writing about the scandals that happened to him. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul was put out of the synagogue. Ultimately, he's going to be killed for Christ, and he's living through these scandals right now, but he's not stumbling. He's not scandalized by all these things that are going on in his life. Christ marks out the pathway through this spiritual minefield. In his cross, he has exploded the chief mine in our path. He's already detonated it. Death itself has been destroyed. With that explosive cleared, we have nothing to fear, come whatever scandals may. As Christ tells his disciples, these things I've told you before they happen, that you may not stumble, but glorify God when they do. May Christ be exalted 
Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exalted Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to walk in a path that is pleasing in his sight, even as Paul told us, whether we are present or absent, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We pray as well, O Lord, that you would help us not to stumble when scandals arise and things are hard. But we pray you would teach us to see in these things the reigning and the ruling Christ who told us before it happened that we might remember that he told us of them. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.